a German night fighter, a Junkers 88, almost collided with us. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Got children. Going to a I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top of us. She did say, you've changed. Soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Arthur Atkins is a veteran of World War II. He was a pilot of a Lancaster bomber for RAF Bomber Command. I spoke with Arthur in his home in Melbourne. Arthur, when were you born? 5th of August 1917 in Surrey Hills, Melbourne. And were you an only child? Did you have older or younger? Oh, no. I was the first child to my parents and... Uh, I had a brother and two sisters, eventually, one of four. What was your childhood like? Oh, very pleasant. I spent a few years at the Canterbury State School. That was all that happened to me, really, during the first few years. Canterbury was a, quite a nice spot to, uh, to live in, little shops not far from where we lived and so on. Did any of your family members serve in World War I? Well, my father wasn't, but uh, I had a, a number of uncles who were. One uncle, uncle was uh, an officer of some sort, I think he was a lieutenant. Another uncle was a private, more or less in the same unit, in the machine gun, machine gun company or... Western Front? On the Western Front, yeah. Did they survive? Yeah, they both did. I didn't lose any uh, uncles. I had a couple of others who were there too, but uh, they all came back. Did they talk about their experiences at all? No, I don't think so. I don't think I asked them about their wartime experience. I knew what they were. They were in, they were, uh, uh, in the machine gunners, which is probably a safer, safer place to be than uh, carrying a rifle, you know, towards the German lines or something like that. Did the Great Depression impact on your family? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, it didn't impact until uh, about halfway through it, I suppose. I was at school anyway, so I didn't, I didn't know much about the, the Depression. I still stayed at school. What were your favourite subjects at school? Well, I just put up with all of them. I don't think I had any <laughs> favourites. <laughs> what did you like to do for fun when you were young? Any hobbies, sport? I did a little bit of uh, house football at, uh, at Scotch College and uh, a bit of rowing there. I was in uh, a couple of eight crews, racing eights on the Henley course in Melbourne at one stage and uh, we had... Uh, House crews, uh, House 4, that was one of my best moments because uh, the last uh, race I had uh, at Scotch, we won in the House 4, the Morrison House 4s, we won that uh, race. Did you keep in touch with your rowing buddies after school or after going to Yeah, well, uh, I joined the Mercantile Rowing Club in the city. I'm still a member there, actually. Still? I don't do any rowing now, but uh, I go to... A lot of their uh, luncheons and so on, whenever I can. Did any of your fellow rowers serve in the Second World War? But uh, 
most of my friends all got back safely from the Second World War. You know, personal friends, old school friends and so on. They all got back, except one chap uh, from Melbourne Grammar, Dave Brown. He, he got shot. He was a pilot in the RAF like I was. He got shot down and killed uh, after he'd done about, I think, 26 operations, which was bad luck for him. Yeah, and he had four to go. That's so close to the finish line. That's tragic. Yeah, that's right. Now he was shot and uh, two of his crew managed to bail out and became prisoners of war because I met them after the war. And uh, I was so surprised to see them. I thought they'd all been killed, but uh, two of them survived. POWs for uh, about 12 months or so. So they'd bailed out of the plane while David... I don't know. I don't know... Uh, just how, how it happened. I was so surprised to see them. We didn't talk about much, and I, I forgot to ask them why, uh, you know, they were the only two out. I think I know why they were the only two that got out, because uh, they were the closest. One was the, uh, I think he was a rear gunner. Well, he could get out pretty quickly out of his turret if, if the plane was burning or something like that, which it probably was. I think it was probably shot down by a German fighter was probably on fire and he got out and the, the bomb aimer got out. Well, the bomb aimer was right up, up the front of a Lancaster and uh, he just had to lift a, a hatch off the floor and dive out with his parachute on through it. The bomb aimer sits on top of the escape hatch, so... Yeah, that's right. And the rear gunner, it's that kind of risky position where if the electrics fail, you're stuck. You can't turn your turret to get out. You're trapped, but well, if you can... Uh, I think he, he turned his uh, turret around and the, the, the idea for the uh, rear gunner was to turn the turret side on, open the doors and go out backwards with your parachute on. And I think that's what he probably did, but I didn't ask him about that. I imagine they would have felt some survivor's guilt being the only two Yeah, well, anyway. it would have been harder for, uh, for the pilot, which... Uh, my friend was David Brown because he had his parachute strapped to him and he'd have to make his way to that hatch down under the nose with no one to hold the aircraft steady for him. I don't think he would have thought to have uh, put the automatic pilot on that if it still worked, which it probably didn't at that stage with them all bailing out. Anything could have been happening to the aircraft as he was heading for the trap door at the, at the front of the plane and, you know, the, the escape hatch and the floor of the bomb owner's compartment. Let's jump back a bit. Do you remember when you were growing up in the 1930s, were you aware of any rumours or rumblings about war in Europe or was the outbreak a surprise? Oh, no, no. Well, when I was at school, there was no, dis no discussion about what might happen in a future war or anything like that. We used to have Anzac Day commemorations, of course, and uh, no, the one in November too. What would that be? The, uh, Armistice, oh, the Day. Armistice, Armistice Day. Yeah, celebrated that at both Canterbury State School and Scotch College. Saluted the flag and all that sort of stuff. Where were you when war was declared? I think I was in the Mercantile Rowing Club's building. <laughs> Forgot we started to talk about it. But we knew it was getting pretty close, though. But that's where I remember I was standing at the doorway, just looking over at the river from the Mercantile Rowing Club, and, and the word came out that the, uh, we were now at war with Germany. Once you left school, did you study? Did you go into a trade? Well, I, uh, I worked with uh, 
an insurance company in in the uh, various positions in the office. The uh, MLC insurance company, that's Mutual Life and Citizens. I had about three years there. And what finally inspired you to join up and serve? Oh, that was an interesting uh, thing. Uh, I, I wasn't in the insurance company for very long after the war started. I'd already, uh, I'd already given my notice that I wanted to change, that I was changing jobs, and uh, I, I was uh, working in the leather goods industry. Actually, when uh, things were getting uh, a bit rough overseas, the uh, factory I was with they were making uh, clothing and so on for uh, the army. And the Americans too, when they came into the war, uh, the company made the leather jackets for the uh, American uh, Air Force pilots that came to Australia without their leather jackets, <laughs> which they were very keen on. So the conflict's ongoing and you decide to join up and contribute to the war effort. I understand, of course, you made it into the Air Force, but not without some initial difficulty. I had some friends who were... Had been, uh, you know, Saturday afternoon soldiers. They were, that is, they were in in the uh, AMF before the war. It was just a hobby. I wasn't, but they were. And uh, their units took them to Mount Martha. So I, I knew about four or five people there, and I went down to visit them on uh, one occasion, and uh, I found them just uh, enjoying life on the beach at Mount Martha. I said, "Oh, this is the sort of army I like." When I went back, I I made inquiries about joining up. Recruiting office was somewhere uh, near Fairfield, I think, over the other side of the river. And I went along there and uh, and said, I said I want to I want to join up because I I didn't say it was just because uh, I might be uh, on the beach at Mount Martha with my friends, but uh, uh, they said, oh well, look, uh, they asked me what my job was, and uh, I was in this leather goods business at the time, making. Uh, I wasn't actually making, but I was in the clerical or financial side of it. And uh, I said, no, you can't join up. You're in a reserved occupation. So I said, oh, I've just been sacked. And I said, oh, well, that's different. You know, we didn't realise you'd been sacked. You haven't got a job. No, you can join up. So I sacked myself on the spot. I was hiring and firing anyway in the job I was in. So that was the first thing I could think about. But the funny thing was... Instead of uh, the day that uh, I actually went into harness with the army uh, with my lunch in a paper bag as requested, and I found we weren't going to Mount Martha, but we were going to a place called Trowell, which was near Seymour. Uh, was, uh, so I found I'd made the wrong choice. I was in the army for a few months so, until I got into the Air Force. And you get into the Air Force, but while doing so, the military police turn up at your parents' place. Oh, well, that was after I was at, at, uh, at uh, Summers. In the, uh, the first place, when I wanted to leave the Army and join the Air Force, I had to uh, write out an application form and give it to the CO, and he'd consider it and, and uh, hopefully discharge me so I could join the Air Force Well. Uh, I wrote out about, I think I counted them up, about three or four different applications to the army office in the camp that I was in and never heard a word about them. So I think they just threw them in the rubbish bin, my applications to change the Air Force. So uh, one weekend when I was had uh, a weekend in Melbourne, I went up to the Air Force recruiting office in uh, Preston Motors building in, I think it was in uh, 
Russell Street or somewhere like that. I said, oh, I'd like to volunteer for the Air Force. And I said, OK, well, we'll give you a test and all that sort of thing and uh, you can tell us what uh, you've done at school and all that. Uh, they uh, eventually said, well, you've, uh, you're, uh, you're going to be in the, uh, in the uh, Air Force, all right. You've passed all the tests, physical and, uh, and uh, mental tests, and uh, come back on Monday, we'll finalise a couple of the tests we've still got to do, and uh, we'll uh, uh, make it official. Uh, this, this was on, I think, on the Saturday when I went in the uh, Air Force recruiting section. I said, look, I can't come back on Monday. I'm in the Army. They want me back on Monday, uh, Sunday night at the latest. I said, well, if you want to be in the Air Force, you come back here on Monday. I said, OK, I'll be here. And so I sent the CO of the Army a telegram saying unavoidably detained and <laughs> returning at the earliest possible next week. And uh, that got me out of a bit of trouble. And uh, the... Uh, uh, Air Force people gave me a sheet of paper saying you are now a member of the RAAF and uh, you'll be placed on the reserve for the time being and called up when uh, uh, when necessary and uh, you've got to attend uh, classes uh, which are being uh, held at the, uh, I think in the Flinders Street Railways building somewhere and uh, on two nights a week, Tuesdays and Friday nights or something like that and also you've got to attend on Sundays every Sunday at the local post office for practice in the Morse Code. And this is all on the piece of paper. And, oh, yes, and your number is 418514. Uh, your rank is ACT2. And so I showed this to the uh, CO when I got back to the Army camp on uh, Tuesday. I got on the, on the train and uh, CO picked it up and I saw him start to read and he read it all through and he didn't know what to do with it. He'd never had this trouble before with any of his uh, troops, apparently. <laughs> and he finished up saying, hand your uniform in. This was about, uh, about half an hour he took to read the, this thing and decide to say this. Hand your uniform in at the, uh, the gate and uh, bugger off, which I did. But fortunately, I brought some, a few civilian clothes in a small bag, which uh, I didn't wave in front of him, but I had it at my side when I was sitting on this side of the desk and he was like you were over there. And uh, I was able to strip my uniform off in the guardhouse at the front gate, throw it on their chair or something and put the civilian clothes on. That's how I left the army. Rather fun exit for you. It was, yeah. And then you begin your air training. How did it feel being paid to fly? Oh, well... I had about four four months uh, ground subjects at uh, summers before I got anywhere near flying anything. So a slow start then. Yeah, it was. But um, after you've been there, had been there for about four months, they had decided what they're going to do with you. Whether they'll make you a, a gunner or a pilot or a navigator or a wireless operator. That was the the, uh, the system at the time. But I said, look, uh, they said, oh, I think uh, we should make you a navigator because you did very well in uh, in figure work and navigation. Well, I tried very hard, but I'd done it all at school anyway, so it wasn't any trouble for me. Uh, but uh, they said, uh, well, you want to be a pilot, do you? And they said, yeah. I said, yes. And they said, oh, well, seeing you came top of your course, you have a choice. It's a rule here. You have a choice of what you're going to do. So I came number one in, the, in that e entry. 
they said, well, yes, and uh, we'll, we're going to send you to uh, Benalla where they're flying tiger moths and you'll learn to fly tiger moths at Benalla. So after a, a couple of days' leave, uh, I arrived at Benalla. I don't know how I got there. I suppose the, uh, the Air Force had us, uh, gave me a train ticket or something, but got to Benalla and uh, I found I wasn't going to start uh, flying tiger moths immediately. I had to do uh, a month's work on cleaning the tiger moths of the oil that leaked out of the engines and handling the, pushing the tiger moths into position in the shed and they were in that hangars when, they, uh, when the boys are finished flying them. And that was my job. I think I was known as, what was it, ground terriers or something. That was a, uh, uh, a slang term for our job. Uh, anyway, it was, it was we'd, uh, after, after the tiger moths had flown for the day, they'd give us buckets of petrol, foot deep, with a piece of rag, and we had to go out and, and uh, splash petrol on the on the engine covers of the tiger moss and get all the grease wiped off them and make them look brand new again because they were mostly leaked a lot of oil like old cars. They didn't like oil oil marks all over their tiger moth engines. But after a while, uh, well, it was my turn to learn to fly them, and I did. I flew them for about two or three months there until about December of that year and became a qualified tiger moth pilot. Did you lose many people on the course? Did people fail? There were no crashes uh, at uh, Penella with the Tigers. That's pretty successful. Uh, but there were some rather heavy landings there and uh, a bit of damage done to the wheels and undercarriage by some of the pilots under training. I, I, I managed to do nice landings. I, I never blamed for any damage to the Tiger Moss. Can you tell me about your first mission in March 1944? where you're dropping pamphlets. Oh, that was in, a, in the Wellington. We learned to fly Wellingtons. It was late in my course in the, uh, in the Wellington instruction. Uh, everyone had to do a flight in a Wellington over Europe uh, as a pilot and drop leaflets for the... Uh, mostly, they're in French for the, uh, the, you know, to supporting the French resistance. And uh, we set off in the... Uh, uh, in the uh, Wellington one night with a load of leaflets packed in uh, a big sort of uh, container in the bomb bay with doors on the bottom and the controller by the bomb aimer could press a button and open the doors and all the leaflets would fall out. That was their whole idea of it. Did you fly any other missions in the Wellington? Oh, well, I'd flown a lot. Of, that was about my last uh, trip in the Wellington or, or close to it. Uh, we, I'd, I'd flown all over England in the Wellington, uh, England, Scotland and Wales in the Wellington. But that was your first flight over occupied Europe? Occupied, German-occupied Europe. That was my first flight. And uh, that was German-occupied France. We didn't go uh, any further than France. How did that make you feel, flying over that occupied territory and you're finally getting close to the enemy? Oh, I made us feel a bit nervous, that's all. But we just pressed on. The thing that uh, made me most nervous, though, we we, fly, we crossed the coast into France, and uh, and I could see there was a, uh, a light shining on us. So I, I thought it was a searchlight that picked us up. Well, after a while, it turned out it was following us across France towards the uh, spot where we had to drop the leaflets. And the light followed us. I realised that it wasn't a searchlight on us. It was our landing light that got switched on accidentally and it was shining straight down. Well, there was a landing light for night flying, which we never used. And I'd, I'd never used it anyway. And uh, you uh, 
switched it on and then turned the power on and it swung the light which was stacking up in the in the wing forward so it threw the light forward but the lamp it came on but it hadn't been swung forward. I don't know how how it got switched on accidentally. Someone someone's elbow. It might have been mine. It might have been the uh, flight engineers. But someone accidentally switched the this landing light on before we got to the French coast. That's a big invitation for a German night fighter or anti-aircraft gun. To... Not necessarily the uh, uh, German night fighter, which didn't seem to be in the area anyway. They were, they were busy in where the people were dropping bombs. They weren't bomb bombing uh, uh, little towns like Chartres, which where we had to drop our leaflets. Anyway, when the uh, the, the next calamity was, was when uh, we were over Chartres and the bomb aimer pressed his button to drop the leaflets. He pressed the wrong button and the whole can of leaflets fell out. Uh, we had two big cans. Uh, the cans were about as long as this and as wide as this table, full of leaflets. Not quite as wide, but as long as this table. And uh, the whole can fell out. And it's meant to separate and spill the contents out rather than drop yeah, a great would, big Yeah, it would have hit the, uh, hit the ground or the building or gone through the roof of the Chartres Cathedral. I don't know what happened to it. Could have gone through the roof and made a big hole in their roof. Could have hit someone walking on the street. Might have hit some of the parishioners in, in Chartres uh, Cathedral. Maybe it hit a German. <laughs> More likely to hit a frog, I thought. <laughs> but anyway, it... Uh, uh, the next, uh, he managed to get the door open properly on the uh, second container and the leaflets all fluttered out gently down below us. So we did drop some leaflets properly. I don't know what the Germans would have done with that can full of packed tightly of, <laughs> of leaflets. Uh, the leaflet was entitled the uh, something of the air. Uh, the, in, they were all printed in French. I, I could read them because I'd done French at school. And it was, uh, I'd, I'd, had a, I'd, I'd been shown a sample of what we were dropping. And I think it was called the Newspaper of the Air or something, courtesy of the RAF. That's and, very quaint. Yeah, it was. Just little leaflets. There was a story of that, uh, you know, they're coming in to rescue all your few Frenchmen uh, very shortly and that sort of stuff. Secret messages coded in there for uh, the well, resistance. Well, this was about uh, a few months February, before, March or something, but I had a lot of more training to do before I went over with the uh, bombers. Then in July 1944, you were transferred to the Royal Air Force, 625 Squadron. Well, I was in the Royal Air Force almost as soon as I got to England. But, but you I wasn't, I wasn't a bomber, I was in the RAF's training units. We got into Bomber Command for training on Wellingtons. That, that was part of Bomber Command, the Wellington. And then I, uh, I was transferred to another airfield, uh, uh, where we flew Halifaxes to uh, teach me to fly four-engined bombers, the same size as the Lancaster, which is that one behind your head there. Uh, I, was, I did a month on flying Halifaxes. When you get to your new aerodrome for the Lancasters, do you remember meeting your crew or the experience of crewing up? No, we actually we, we, we gathered the crew when we started to fly uh, Wellingtons. Oh, so you took the same crew with you, essentially? Yeah, yeah. we, we didn't have that many people uh, with us. Uh, see, there was only five in the crew in the, uh, in the Wellington. There were seven in the crew in the Lancaster. So we had to get a, an extra two people in our crew. One was a, a, a flight engineer because he, we had to, hand, he had to handle 
four engines and make sure they're all getting their ration of petrol and so on. And uh, uh, the other one was an extra gunner because we had a mid-upper turret in the uh, Lancaster and the Halifax, as well as the uh, tail gunner. We had to get another gunner to put in the mid-upper. So we have ended up with seven people like in that photo you saw. And are you a mix of Australians, Canadians, Brits, or are you an all Aussie crew? Or The first seven-member uh, crew there was um, all Australians and one Englishman. The only Englishman was the flight engineer because they didn't train flight engineers in Australia. Well, they didn't have any Lancasters in Australia anyway. So they, they couldn't train him on a Lancaster. So he had to be an, uh, an Englishman. Jerry Glover, his name was. I think he was only about 19 when he was in our first joined our crew. Arthur, can you tell me about a few of your early operations? Yeah, well, the, the first operation we had was on a French town in occupied, occupied France, and it was on the 4th of July. And I was the second pilot on that trip in the Lancaster. It was a Lancaster from uh, 625 Squadron. I'd been moved to 625 Squadron about uh, two weeks before or something like that. And uh, fortunately, they sent us on leave right away. So uh, I got back and uh, but only been back for a couple of days and, and uh, found out on the list to be a second pilot that night. And the first pilot was an American. He'd uh, crossed the border into Canada and joined the Royal Canadian Air Force and come over to England with them, to Bomber Command. I'm trying to paint a picture of the experience of going on one of these missions. Can you talk me through the day you would have of when you wake up, when you find out where you're going, and then preparing for the flight? The... Yeah, well, uh, sometime during the day, you'd, you'd, uh, the pilots would all have to appear at the flight commander's office first thing in the morning, or after breakfast, that is, about 9 o'clock. And he'd, uh, he'd have a few words to say to us and uh, sometimes show us, tell us that we're on the list for uh, uh, an operation that night or something like that. And uh, I can't remember very much about that because it didn't matter. The thing that didn't matter when you was when you looked at the list, which was about, uh, you know, half a dozen of them spread around the, the station on the uh, uh, walls of the, inside walls of the, of the units we were living in and you'd find that you were listed for for operations that night. Uh, my first uh, list was this American pilot, uh, Flight Officer Slade, his name was. Flight Officer was the rank, American rank, that's not a, not a RAF rank. It's uh, the equivalent of a pilot officer in the RAF or RAAF. And uh, he sat in, the, in his usual seat on the left-hand side, and I, I sat on the flight engineer's seat on the right hand, on his right-hand side, up front, looking out the front windscreen. And uh, uh, the flight engineer—I forget whether it was my flight engineer or uh, or the American's flight engineer—but he had to make do somewhere behind us. He didn't have a seat when I was the uh, second pilot. I didn't have any flying controls. The Lancasters, the operational Lancasters, only had the one set of controls. That's for the captain of the aircraft on the left. So I didn't have any 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 control over it. I just sat there and watched, and listened, <laughs> and, and almost died of fright <laughs> from time to time. What was happening to make you die of fright, nearly? Well, uh, I think it was a. Fortunately, it was a French town. It wasn't a really bad one. 
on the 4th of July. You went to Orleans? Yes, and that was when I was uh, the uh, second pilot with the American. I thought it was appropriate because it was on the 4th of July, his uh, favourite day. Independence Day. Yeah, and uh, that, that, was, that was my first operation. The next operation was uh, uh, about uh, a daylight one next time. I think it was a night operation, the first, my first one. When was your first uh, mission where you were the lead pilot? Next day, on Ju- no, two days later, July the 6th. Did you prefer daylight missions to night because you could see more was going on or would you have felt more exposed? Uh, no, I liked the daylight ones because the uh, we didn't need to see where it was going. The, uh, the uh, navigator saw to all that. He gave me the course to steer and would tell me where to go. And uh, the good thing about it was that we didn't have to worry about night fighters shooting us down because they always sent uh, escorts of uh, Spitfires and uh, other other fighter aircraft. You'd look up in the sky and you'd see there's about uh, 500 Spitfires and Mustangs following us or or escorting us wherever we were going to. That was good. But, uh, of course, they, they didn't stop the Germans shooting up from the ground. That was just the same as at night. But there are no searchlights. But the other distinction, I suppose, is if you've got the full squadron going, there are a lot of you out there flying. And if it's daylight, you can see each other and keep your own space nice and clear. If it's at night, you can't see each other. You might collide into one another. I never had that trouble. Flying over England, we'd probably have the navigation lights on, a green on the right wing and a red on the left. But over France... Oh, no, all lights off then. Let's talk about one of your nighttime missions. Uh, I understand one of your missions was to bomb a V2 rocket-factory. The forest of De, De Croc uh, on the 6th of July. And whereabouts? And that's quite a distance compared to your first couple of trips. Roughly three hours from Gator Whale. The mission was to try and blow up their uh, launching site, which were in, the, for instance, the, the, uh, uh, that one on the uh, July the 6th was in a forest and uh, we were given the uh, you know the exact position and we, we found that all right and we dropped our bombs we, we didn't see any any v1s at all you couldn't see them uh, under the trees if 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 we're in the right spot what's the atmosphere like on the plane are you allowed to talk much is it cold is it windy no the uh, lancaster was uh, very nicely heated it was always just the right temperature for me. The gunners, though, had to wear special electrically heated suits, electric heated gloves, electric heated shoes or socks or something like that, and a bit of a few wires in the bodywork somewhere or other. The mid-upper turret, the one on the t- on the back, top back, was didn't have any opens in it except en- enough to poke the guns through. But the one at the, in, the, in the rear, the rear turret, had a big cutout, so it was much clearer for the gunner to see out the back and looking through perspex and that was the cold turret on one occasion the gunner called me up and said uh, there's oxygen supply had gone off we were flying at 24,000 feet at that stage coming back from a raid and I said and he knew this because he was at the uh, pre-operational briefing about it that we were going to come back at 23 or 24,000 feet to get over the top of an electrical storm which was going to be in our way on the way home. The weathermen had decided that they wouldn't cancel it because 
the height of the electrical storm was anticipated to be about uh, 20,000 feet or something, so we had to fly at about 23,000 or 24,000 to come home. Well, we were very going along very nicely at 24,000 feet. The Lancaster uh, was quite happy about it, and the engines were running smoothly. And the damn rear gunner calls up and said, look, Skip, he said, uh, my oxygen supply has gone out. I said, well, I'll hang on a minute, Ron, and I'll just see what I'll do. And I thought, oh, well, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go down five or 6,000 feet. You'll still be able to breathe then. We'll be in the storm, but uh, it'll only be the top of the storm. And down we went. It was the worst, uh, worst bit of flying I'd ever experienced. There were blue lights all around. We were fly- found we were flying in a bumpy thunderstorm, and there were blue lights around each propeller, propeller tip. There's a blue circle around each for the four engines, and uh, on the windscreen, there are little zigzags coming down the windscreen of little sparks in, in, right in front of my eyes. And that was part of this electrical storm, of course. And uh, nothing else happened except it was a bit of a rough trip, you know, I bumped up and down and up and down and so on. But we got through it all right, and Ron got all right. He, he just stayed in the turret, that's right. I remember now. I didn't want him to come inside because we were still over Germany. And I wanted someone in the back end of the plane. Here's your eyes and ears to see what's see, going on. See if anyone's creeping up behind us. I don't think they would have. I don't think they'd have wanted to fly through this, anywhere near this electrical storm themselves anyway. How'd you feel flying through that storm? Yeah, well, I felt a bit nervous, but uh, we got bumped up and down a little bit, but that didn't worry me much because we were strapped in anyway. But we came through it out of their end and... Uh, Ron was still in the turret and feel, he was still feeling all right. He could still breathe. But uh, I, know, I, I knew he'd be able to breathe because I'd flown in South Australia. I flew a, uh, one of our training planes at 20,000 feet without any oxygen at all. At 20,000 feet without oxygen, you see it's, uh, the lights are starting to go out. The sky, sky starts getting dark and uh, that shows that you lack oxygen. It doesn't affect you badly at 16,000 feet, which we got down to, or 17,000 feet, with Ron still in the back turret, breathing air. <laughs> what air was coming in? Fresh air. Fresh air. Fresh, all right. I think, it, you know, it used to be terribly cold yeah? outside the aeroplane. Are there any particular encounters with night fighters that you can recall? I only saw one. That was by accident. Where was it? Over... Uh, over Stuttgart, Germantown, in Lancaster. Going after you or someone else? No, he wasn't going after us. We were circling Stuttgart. We got there late because we had a, a relief navigator and he wasn't any good. He got us approaching Stuttgart from the wrong direction. And we were circling Stuttgart trying to see where the buildings were. But every time we got around over where it was, over where Stuttgart should have been, there seemed to be clouds. I don't know whether it was dust from previous uh, bomb explosions or, or just clouds between us and the ground. But we couldn't see it. We never never saw a building in Stuttgart. But on our third trip around, we were flying it sort of anti-clockwise. That was because I got, got a better view and the aircraft was tilted over to the left. I could look out the window and see and help, help them search for the town of Stuttgart. On our third trip, a German night fighter, a Junkers 88, almost collided with us. He just managed to get aside and I think probably rise up a bit over our starboard wing with his starboard wing and he shot past us. I think the closing speed would probably be uh, 
about 400 or between four and 500 miles an hour, us coming together. I noticed he didn't bother to turn around and chase us. He's probably too stunned to think about that for a few seconds. And by that time, we were a long way front. We didn't go around to chase him, of course. But I said to the rear gunner, look, look, Keith, I said, uh, drop your bombs where you... Just make an estimate of where you think Stuttgart might be and drop the lot. I'm not going around again for you. Because he wanted us to go around for a fourth time and have another try. I said, no, that's enough. So we dropped all the bombs. And uh, we got a photograph... But the photograph was of a forest. Because you have to photograph the target you drop the bombs over to prove. To that was automatically on. done. Uh, every Lancaster had a camera uh, with a long-distance lens on it to take pictures of uh, where we'd uh, been with our visit and what had happened to where we'd been. They'd take a series of uh, about uh, four or five photos in a, in a line as we flew over the target area. And next day we could go and look and see what had done. What we'd done, whether it was good or bad. And mostly we had uh, very good results with our pictures. What was the casualty rate of 625 Squadron? Not very high. I'd say that average only about one in one casualty or in about three trips, three operations. Wouldn't be much more than that. My last operation was the 31st of October, 1944. That was my 31st Lancaster operation. Why was that? Because the rule, as I understand it, was you had to do a tour of 30 missions. That's right. And you're down as 31 Lancaster missions and the Wellington, so you have 32 trips under your belt. Did those first two not count because one was a Wellington and one you were a second pilot? Uh, shouldn't it all count to a total of 30? Or No, the second pilot doesn't come into it, but it counts as a half operation in my logbook. But I always counted as, as an operation anyway. I so would that do. makes up uh, 31 with bombs on and one with leaflets in the Wellington. Well, Arthur, I just wanted to read a few statistics to put everything we've discussed so far into context. Only 35 Lancasters completed more than 100 successful operations each. 3,249 planes were lost. 55,000 crew members of Bomber Command were lost in action, mm. over 3,000 of which were Australians. A Bomber Command crew member had worse odds of survival than an infantry officer in World War I. In World War II, the only higher casualty rate was the German U-boat crews. That's right, U-boat. And if you took a random sample of 100 airmen in Bomber Command, only 27 would survive a tour of operations without being injured, shot down, taken prisoner or killed. And you survived, Arthur, not even the minimum tour of 30, but 32 missions. It is nothing short of astounding. So my question is, do you feel skilled or lucky? My best friend in the Air Force, the one I did a lot of training with in the early days, a fellow named Dave Brown, he got shot down on a raid, not on the raid I was in, but the same night. He was sent to bomb Stuttgart and I was sent to bomb Frankfurt. Dave never got to Stuttgart. He was about 10 minutes away from Stuttgart when his Lancaster got shot down or something got, went wrong with it. And, uh, you know, his, two of his blokes bailed out. And, uh, but I, I thought, well, th this trip that I've just done, for, we, we flew straight towards Frankfurt, did a good bombing run and uh, dropped all our bombs. Didn't see any much in the way of flak from the ground. And then we flew over Frankfurt 
for about uh, three or four minutes and cleared Frankfurt and then came back and had a look at Frankfurt on to dinner. A wide turn and on the way back, heading back towards England, we could look down at Frankfurt and see it on fire. Streets of Frankfurt were all lit up. Like Melbourne at night, I thought it would be because it was square patterned streets in Frankfurt. So I always classed that as a, as a good operation. But Dave Brown was sent to another place and I think the bloke in charge of working out where we were going to had managed to fool the Germans a bit and they had practically no night fighters in the area. So you put it down to your CO's greatest strategy? Not our CO, but the, the man, Butch Harris, his name was. His Christian name wasn't Butch, but we called him Butch. Arthur Harris. Yes, sir, Arthur Harris. He got a knighthood or something. But he uh, he was very, very tricky with why he'd sent us, you know. Uh, uh, he did his best always to deceive the Germans as to where we were heading for and where we were going to. But uh, I think that was an advantage, people in number one group, had over people in number five he, who he didn't number five group harris didn't have any control or very little control over he left it to the another head man in number five but he did most of the uh, a lot of the hard work for number one group which we're in and uh, it showed up in his uh, results except uh, 460 squadron had a, a worse record than we did ours was a raf squadron there was another one four four miles from us, 460 Squadron, which was an Australian squadron, had an Australian CO and uh, a lot of Australian troops in it, that is, air, air crew in it. And uh, we had very few Australian air crew. And the discipline was very, very strict in our squadron and it wasn't very strict in 460 Squadron, four miles down the road from us. I think it's a matter of discipline and a, a lot and discipline the way we flew. Before we took off, I used to think, now, will it be better if I'm a minute early or two minutes behind the bombing time? They gave us an exact bombing time, like 12 hours, three minutes or something like that. That's three minutes past midnight. And uh, I had to decide whether I'd I'd hit it right on the dot, fly over the centre of the town at three minutes past midnight or fly over it at two minutes past uh, midnight by the time the uh, the, the uh, German gunners wake up and get their guns lined up on us and the searchlights light us up. Or delay it a little bit while they're reloading. I used to, you know, think about all these things and I don't think uh, my friends in the, some of the other squadrons like the 467 squadron uh, where Dave Brown was, he wasn't the type to work out. He used to... One of his favourite ex- expressions to me was when I was a bit worried about something or other, he said, oh, she'll be right, she'll be right. He'd hope for the best. I liked to plan it a bit better than he did. I never complained about the way he, uh, he thought about bombing because he was on a different squadron. But I, th- I should imagine he would, uh, on, on most of uh, most of his operations, he'd, uh, he'd sort of trust to luck. But I, I used to uh, try and think about you know, how can we deceive them? Early, later, sideways, or coming from a slightly slightly different angle or something like that? 70-plus years later, David Brown is still a big figure for you. You remember him fondly. Oh, and yes, his we, we used to fly together on training in England. We used to fly in the Airspeed Oxford twin-engine trainer. That was, that was good fun. How did you react when you heard of his passing? 
and when did you? Oh, I didn't react at all, I don't think. I just said, oh, well, there's another one gone sort of thing. It wasn't happening terribly much in our squadron. It was happening in 467 squadron. He'd written me a letter just a couple of weeks before he got shot down or, or shot up from the ground. I don't know which it was. And uh, he gave me a list of, uh, in his letter, of the people who'd, uh, who'd been shot down, about half a dozen people who, who I knew and were friends of mine in his 467 Australian squadron. Well, Arthur, rightfully so. You're decorated with the Distinguished Flying Cross for yeah. completing your tour. You become a fly instructor and eventually you return to Australia. That's right. When do you come home? We did a, a flight over Germany. The war finished on May the 8th in Europe. And uh, about the 30th of June, they sent, sent me on a, a sightseeing tour over Germany with a load of about 15 or 20 ground staff people, including girls and boys, WAFs and airmen, to sightseeing what they've been working on for the last four years. But that was my last flight in the Lancaster. That was the end of my instructing career too, on the 30th of June. They sent us to a holding station, another RAF station, where I think there was about a couple of thousand Australian airmen, ex-aircrew stationed there. We left that aircrew holding unit Gamston in September and got to Brighton, left Brighton on the 23rd of September and we got to uh, the Melbourne Cricket Ground on the 17th of October, 17th of October in 1945. Did you stay in touch with the crew after the war? I saw three of the Australian crew after the war from time to time. The rear gunner, saw him a couple of times, met him in a pub actually in Auburn. I went round to his house with him a couple of times, visited him. And there was another chap who was living in Queensland, but he, he made a few trips down, saw me. That was the uh, wireless operator. He was one of the most reliable ones of the whole lot. Very good wireless operator. And the third one uh, was a navigator. I, ne- I never saw him again, an Australian navigator. And the bomb homer, yeah, he was an Australian too. Yeah, he's been here in his house. And so is the uh, wireless operator. So I, I was in touch with about four of them, I think after the war for a while. Did you find it hard to readjust to civilian life after the war? Uh, not really. I got my old job back with the leather goods factory. And stuck with the rowing club? And the rowing club. I went back to the rowing club and did a bit of rowing. Had a couple of wins there. Well, Arthur, at 100 years old, how do you reflect on your time at war today? How do I reflect on it? Well, I think it was the best job I ever had. I, it was the most enjoyable job I ever had, easily. I liked the uh, Air Force. I was a bit sorry when the war finished because I, they had to chuck me out of the Air Force. I liked it. I could have fought against it, I think, and perhaps stayed in it at a lowered rank somehow or other. One, one chap did that I knew. Uh, he dropped out a couple of ranks and stopped in the Air Force, but he didn't stay in it very long. Uh, the Air Force wasn't the same when there wasn't a war on we were top of the uh, top of the class while the war was on. It was good, good fun. We got free tickets all over England, as far north as England England reaches, and as far west as England uh, stretches out to. Uh, if I hadn't had a, a sort of a job in a, in Australia waiting for me again, I would have liked to have stopped in England. Well, Arthur, it's an amazing life. Mm. Thank you for having us in your home and sharing your story with us today. At the time of recording, Arthur was 100 years old. I'm so glad he spoke with me. 
We're at Life on the Line podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at LOTL pod on Twitter. For more stories of Australian airmen flying in World War II, check out the Season 1 bonus episode, Australian Airmen's Untold Stories with Michael Veach. Also go to www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com forward slash book to discover the biography of the late Barney Greatrex, a bomb aimer in Bomber Command and the only survivor when his Lancaster was shot down. He then went on to fight with the French resistance. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. (laughs) ¶¶